Good morning. This is my first time saying good morning to all of you. And uh, you don't know me, but I'm the pastor here. My name's Sam. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, I'm happy uh, to see some visitors here today. Thank you for coming. Uh, I hope you feel welcomed here. Also, this is super awkward because today would not be the sermon that I would teach to a room full of visitors if I had the, the choice to decide. Now, um, if, you, uh, if you probably know by now, if you've attended uh, our church or other Calvary chapels, um, we have this habit of teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and then when we're done with that, we, we pick a new one. And we say we do that. This is what the pastors will tell you. Uh, we say we do that because we want to give the whole counsel of God, as Paul encourages us to do in Acts chapter 20. We don't want to skip anything. We know every word of God is profitable uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we teach every verse, and all of that's true. But the other reason we teach every verse of the Bible is to prevent the pastor from skipping the stuff that he just doesn't want to talk about. Okay, and so if at any point in time you feel a little bit awkward, just think that I'm having the sex talk to my parents today. So, like, the tables have, have officially turned, and everything's upside down and backwards. Many of my Sunday school teachers right now are in the room who taught me at this church when I was, so this is, this is the fruit of your labors right here. Um, and, and? We're going to be three weeks in this chapter, so come back for more. Um, go ahead and uh, start in verse one. We're going to read the passage here. I'm going to I'm going to pray, and and then we're going to we're going to study this. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven. We'll read through verse nine, starting in verse one. Paul writes, "Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife." And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Lord, we receive this from you. We are not here to judge your word or judge you by it. We are here submitting ourselves to your word. We are um, we're your servants. Uh, we are your children. We are your students. And we're wanting only to receive the good things that you have for us. Um, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this, this letter of 1 Corinthians. We thank you that your gospel reaches to every area of our lives and is is capable of redeeming us at every level. So I pray that you would give your church ears to hear, um, that you would anoint the preaching of your word, and let us 
have a better understanding not just of ourselves or marriage or sexuality. Uh, I pray that we would have a better understanding and an appreciation of the gospel and the great lengths that it goes to save the person. Uh, we, we praise you for this word. I, I thank you for this church and the opportunity I have this morning to teach them. And once again, we ask your anointing, the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be on us in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is about sex, but it's, a lot, it's about a whole lot more than that. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, I hope, that God approves of romance. I don't know if you've thumbed through the Old Testament, um, but the mere existence of the book of Song of Solomon shows that this is stuff that he doesn't mind talking about, apparently, and he doesn't mind us talking about it either. Um, not only is it possible to have a good and godly view of sex, it is his plan for us to have a good and godly theology about sex. Now, this is a topic that would be easily avoided, but the church would avoid it to its own peril. Uh, it is vital that the God who created the human being and who created marriage and who has a design for human sexuality be heard. He's who we should listen to on this area, and we should be completely dedicated to following his guidelines in this area. This is not only an area where the world has gone wrong, but in many ways throughout the church's history, the church has followed, either by imitating the world or by reacting to it in such an extreme way that they make the error of the pendulum swing it seems like this was an issue in Corinth, in fact, both of these opposite issues. It was, it was um, in Corinth, you'll remember, that, that the church was living among a perverted and hyper-sexualized culture. They made the error either of following the world or in some cases going beyond it. Remember chapter 5 when Paul's like, your sins in this area are disgusting even to the bad guys? Like Gentiles don't talk about the gross stuff you're doing. Okay, that was chapter 5. Um, but they were also reacting in a puritanical way and falling into an anti-sex, anti-body asceticism on the other end of the spectrum. And Paul's kind of addressing some of that here in chapter 7. And you can see this kind of tendency um, in, in a variety of areas, but you, when you consider the book of the Song of Solomon and how people have generally understood the book, people historically make one of two opposite mistakes when dealing with that book. Now, I will say I've never taught through the Song of Solomon, um, but again, if you stick with me for maybe the next 20 years, I think we'll get to it. It's one that I avoid. Um, so I'm going to do them all. I, I've calculated. I've got 20 more years of Bible, and then I'll teach the whole thing. So just stick around. Um, yeah, the, the first error, again, there's two opposite errors here. The first is to completely spiritualize the text, avoiding dwelling on any of the very obvious and sometimes embarrassing anatomical descriptions in that book. Definitely don't try to get any advice on an actual marriage. Don't go somewhere else for that. And then deny the plain and literal reading of the book of Song of Solomon, which is very clearly about a wife and a husband deeply in love, expressing that love. Now, to avoid the scandal of having, you know, a paperback romance novel in the scripture, they'll spiritualize everything and say that book is only, and the key word there is only, about Christ's love for the church. That's super holy and wrong. <laughs> okay, um, and I think there would have been some in Corinth that would have really liked this view. Um, Paul has, has to tell married couples in Corinth that it was okay to act like married people. And there were some who were shaking their heads and thinking, I don't think so. I think that's, that's kind of gross, actually. 
There were some in the church who thought it would just be holier if they avoided physical contact altogether. They've seen sexual sins. They had witnessed how evil a culture can be that devotes itself to a, a pagan idolatry of sex, and then they just swing to the other side and they say, no, it would be more Christian, it would be more spiritual if we just do the Lucy and Ricky separate beds thing. And that's, that's God's plan for marriage. Okay, uh, The first part of this passage that we read in seven, in chapter 7 can be paraphrased kind of like this. Paul says, yeah, okay, about what you wrote to me. When I was talking about celibacy and abstinence, which is a good thing, I obviously wasn't talking about the married people, you dummies. That's a paraphrase again. That's not actual inspired text. I took a semester of Greek, so I can paraphrase. Okay, so the, there's so there's one extreme, right? You can understand there's a the puritanical anti-sex view. They're really, if, if they're honest, they just think sex is gross. It's bad. It's always bad. The pastor probably shouldn't be talking about it quite so much this morning. This view is often the result, sadly, of, of sexual abuse in a person's past, or at least witnessing the abuse of sex. And, and we need to be very clear that the gospel is powerful for healing at this level. Um, so that's one side of things that Paul needs to address, and he addresses it with the gospel. But with every interpretive problem, there can be and often is a reaction that leads to the opposite extreme, an error in the other direction. If we considered our case study of how people read the Song of Solomon, we would see the, the error in the opposite extreme. It would be possible to look at the book of Song of Solomon as a book that is only, again, keyword there, only about sex, as if the entire book really was nothing more than a, an over-the-top embarrassing way for Jewish parents to tell their kids about the birds and the bees. I'm sorry, that is not why it's in the scripture. That is, that is not the whole point. And really, we, we won't get the whole picture, the whole purpose of a book like Song of Solomon or a chapter like 1 Corinthians 7 without the rest of the scripture's voice being heard on this issue of marriage, specifically Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. This is a key verse in understanding any passage about uh, sexuality or marriage um, in 1 Corinthians, sorry, not 1 Corinthians, Ephesians chapter 5, 31 and 32 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. When Paul talks about a mystery, that's a very specific word he uses, and he uses it in a very specific way every time. A mystery is something that has been concealed. No one understood it. But now in Christ, we understand it. That's, a, that's what a mystery is. When he talks about a mystery, he's talking about the last page of the detective novel, not the puzzles at the beginning. He's saying it's a mystery, and we know it's a mystery because now we understand it. And so he's saying marriage has always been a mystery that is now revealed and explained in the gospel. When Paul says one flesh... He doesn't mean one bank account, one address, one tax return. He's talking about bodies. And he says that two becoming one is a mystery that is actually about Christ and the church. This view of marriage is a, cor is a correction to both of the errors that I mentioned. Scripture affirms the two being joined and becoming one flesh. Yes, Song of Solomon, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, it's about sex. But what most people miss is this. Sex is about the gospel. On the one side, you have people that view sex as a god. And this is common in the world. Sex is a religion. 
And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the reaction to that, a puritanical rejection of a good thing. People say sex is gross. It's not God. It's not gross. It's a gift. And it's about the gospel. Why else would it be under attack from the enemy in every age of humanity? The world is under the sway of the wicked one. We know that, right? He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. In other words, we know that the enemy of your souls is not actually creative. He is destructive. He has a set formula, the way he does things. He's very predictable. And in his lack of creativity, he has always attacked the same things. He has always, in every age, tried to pervert and destroy God's design for human sexuality. The enemy only wants to destroy good things. Sexuality, as God designed it to be, is and always will be attacked by the demonic forces that seek to undermine the work of God. They are fighting against the gospel. And again, this chapter is about sex, but it's about more than that. Because sex is always about more than that. It's about the gospel. The mystery of two becoming one is about Christ and his church. As such, we can expect to, this topic to be a matter of spiritual warfare. Our understanding on this issue, our convictions and stance on the issues of human sexuality are gospel issues. And throughout the Old Testament, the spiritual sin of idolatry, worshiping false gods, is always phrased with the vocabulary of adultery, cheating on your spouse. They're always tied together. For Israel, when Israel would turn from the Lord, the Lord describes them as a cheating spouse or maybe even a prostitute. This isn't just wordplay. God created us as body-soul hybrids, and the most physical of all acts is also one of the most spiritually significant. It is of primary importance for us to get this right. There are, and always will be, secondary issues within the church, to be sure. Um, What kind of music you use, what kind of liturgy you follow, the version of the Bible you prefer, uh, even even some doctrines that you can disagree about and still be firmly within the church. Um, There's a number of areas of Christian liberty where we are called to politely, graciously disagree. The Christian sexual ethic is not one of these issues. It is not an issue of secondary importance. At Acts chap- in Acts chapter 15, the first church council, there were some who were wanting to put the burden of Jewish law back on the Gentile Christians, essentially adding work to grace, making the Gentile Christians convert to Judaism in order to be considered Christians. So the apostles meet, and there's a council, there's a meeting, and they hear the arguments, and of course... Through the the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the doctrines of legalism are firmly rejected. You don't add anything to the gospel. But in that chapter that celebrates Christian liberty, rejects extra rules, they double down on this issue and they say, make sure the Gentiles know they are still required to reject sexual immorality. That's a rule we're standing on. That's not a cultural thing. That's not just a Jewish thing versus a Gentile thing. This is of primary importance. Corinth, as you well know by now, was a city that was especially corrupted in this area. If you came for our special Mother's Day sermon last week, you heard all about that when we did chapter 6. Another advantage, just teaching through the Bible, right? Yeah. And the church in Corinth, okay, the Christians in Corinth, they've been saved out of this wicked city. 
They were called to live a life drastically different from the one that had been normalized in their community. And despite the mistakes they were making, which they were making mistakes in this area, right? We read about some of them. But they knew this. They knew they were called to live differently. There were problems in the Corinthian church. We've read about them, but the Christians in Corinth would have known that they were called to live differently than the world around them, and this included their sexuality. We know this because, well, they were getting some things wrong. They were having the right conversation. If you glance at verse 1 of chapter 7, you see that the Corinthians had already reached out to Paul and requested instructions in this area. So in verse 1, it says, now concerning the things of which you wrote me. That's a letter we don't have in scripture. The, uh, we have the Corinthians, though, to, sh to thank for this portion of the letter. They're the ones that brought it up. They weren't saying, oh, Paul's talking about this again. La, 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 la. You know, they, they had asked. They said, teach us what the, how the gospel impacts this area of our lives. They had questions. We don't have their original questions, but we can get a pretty good idea of what they were talking about from the content that Paul shares. The rest of verse 1, Paul says, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, it's clear from the context that he's talking about more than holding hands. Uh, it's also clear from the context that the original question was about celibacy and abstinence as well as sexuality. When Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he's going back to a discussion they had had earlier about celibacy. And he's correcting an extreme position the Corinthians, Corinthians had, but he's still saying, no, if, if you're not married and you are a Christian, that this is correct. You have no business engaging in any sexual activity. Saying that about what you wrote, I'm, I'm doubling down on that. This is correct. However, if you're married, yeah, I obviously wasn't talking to you guys. He's saying, yes, just as I told you, abstinence is good. It's good to practice self-control. It's good to remain pure. Paul would write this in other letters, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's good. It's consistent with Paul's theology and the other apostles. That's all good. But when he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, he wasn't talking about husbands not touching their wives. Now, the issue of celibacy in singleness is going to be covered more later in the chapter. I know you'll all come back for that one. But we'll just start with this, this first, okay? We'll deal with this more later. But it is clear right from verse 1 that Paul validates singleness in the church as long as singleness is also celibacy. Okay, that's important. Paul completely removes the false idea that there is a sort of marriage requirement for spiritual maturity. Um, Paul not only validates singleness, but encourages it for the sake of ministry later in the chapter. There were probably some in Corinth who were asking Paul, well, which is better? Like who outranks who? Married Christian, single Christian. And if I have to stay single, how single do I really have to be? And verse, verse one answers, no touching. That's how single. And then on the other side, there's people who said, well, okay, all right, I get it because I've, I live in Corinth, man. Like, it's bad. And I get that it's bad. So if sex is bad, then married people probably shouldn't do that either, huh? And Paul rolls his eyes almost audibly and corrects that bad idea from verses two through five. Later, when Paul returns to address the single people in Corinth, um, 
In verse 35, he gives the reason for intentional singleness, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Now, this, this is really important, and it kind of frames the entire discussion of relationships that Paul has here. It's important for a few reasons. First, as I've already mentioned, he completely annihilates the false idea that a single person in the church is somehow second-class Christian. And I know that's not something that we would admit to believing, but if you talk to anyone who has been single in a church for any period of time, they will tell you they are often treated this way. Um, if they're not neglected from things, then they are certainly tried to get to go on a date with some guy this other person knows. Okay, Both are not allowed. We have a rule in this church. I'm making it right now. It's not in my notes. Don't do that. Okay, don't, don't try and be the guy that gets the single people to, to date your friend. Okay, not the place. Just not the place. All right, back to the notes. Um, can I get an amen? Yeah, is that, did someone, I, I, I'm talking to individuals who are here, okay? Yeah. Um, so Paul validates intentional singleness. So that's the first thing. That's, that's good. If we need to work in this area, we need to work in this area. But it's important to see Paul's full argument for another reason too, and that is this. Intentional singleness is validated by Paul when singleness is leveraged for the use in ministry for, for the Lord. Singleness is encouraged with the purpose of singleness uh, as a ministry opportunity. In other words, you're single to serve the Lord, not to serve self. So not only does Paul do away with the idea that singleness is second best, he also does away with any self-serving singleness that is a person avoiding commitment and maturity and relationship because they want to do their own thing and not sacrifice for anyone. That is not a valid reason to maintain your moral high ground of singleness. That's not valid in Paul's mind. Now, once again, we're going to get into this. Come back. It's in an upcoming sermon. For now, just know this. There is a space for holy singleness, and there's a valid kind of celibacy. If you need an example for both, how about Jesus? That works, right? Can't really get a better one. So Paul writes, yes, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but that also doesn't mean that marriage is somehow less holy than being unmarried. This is the other side of the coin. In modern church culture, at least in the West, marriage is honored more or less, and that's a good thing. Where we fail, in general, is how to deal with single people. The church should probably work on that. In Corinth, which was hyper-sexualized, there was the potential for the opposite problem of thinking that singleness was more holy. After all, Paul was single, right? I mean, that's good. He can get so much done. Singleness and celibacy would be celebrated as more holy singleness and celibacy would be celebrated in marriage disregarded or even maligned. Can you see Satan's strategy? Encourage immorality outside marriage, plenty of sex there, and then discourage sex within a marriage. He's sneaky, but he's not that sneaky. We're not ignorant of his devices. So Paul addresses both problems. Let's go to verse 2. He says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, at first... This sounds like Paul is saying, yeah, it's good to be single, but since you can't control yourselves, you might as well get married. That is not the argument. That's not the whole picture. He's not saying marriage exists for those without self-control, those losers. So, so they don't fall into any of those gross sins that you don't struggle with. Okay. Now, granted, in verse 9, he does say it is better to be married than to sin. We can all agree on that, right? If those are your options, if those are the two options, then yeah, one's better. But the main point of this first section 
verses two through five, it shows us the main point of this conversation is not directed at single people who should get married because it's the best option they have on the table. It's addressed towards married people who need to start acting like it. And the issue of celibacy being discussed in the context of marriage. And Paul says, uh, celibacy within marriage? You're doing it wrong. That's the argument he has. When he says, let the husband, or sorry, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. The sexual immorality he's talking about would be a married man uh, either visiting a prostitute or the sexual immorality of celibacy within marriage and denying the other partner their rights. That's sexual immorality. And he says, to avoid that, let each one have his own spouse. In verse 3, he says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. This is the sexual immorality he's mentioning in verse 2. Do not deprive one another except with, cons with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come back together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, the issue of whether or not to stay single or get married, that'll be dealt with later on in the chapter, not here. This part is really more about how to live as a married person. And so Paul's argument goes something like this. Singleness is good if you do it right. Celibacy is good if you do it right. But dude, you're married. Obviously, none of that celibacy stuff, celibacy stuff is about you. Obviously. When he says, let each man have his own wife, he's not saying let each man get married. He's not saying, go find a wife. That'll help. That's not what he's saying at all. Later in this chapter, he says something that's almost the opposite of this. What he's saying is let each married person fully participate in and enjoy sex within marriage without feeling like this is somehow a compromise to your spirituality. Why does Paul need to tell married people to love each other like this? Because they were Corinthians. They were Corinthians who were reacting to their sinful, perverted culture, were falling into the error of seeing all sex as unholy, and they were separating from each other, thinking this is good. Paul is telling them, it's not. It's not good. Spouses not loving each other, and, and they were calling that cold, distant neglect a sign of spiritual maturity. Oh, no. And this could have been the result of only seeing an ungodly, destructive kind of sexuality in the world that, you know, that the world offered. But again, the gospel heals at this level and corrects this error. And here's where the whole topic of chapter 7 really ties in with the greater themes of 1 Corinthians. Remember, this, this church is full of problems, right? But the main problem is one problem. The main problem in Corinth wasn't just one particular brand of immorality. It wasn't the rejection of the apostles' authority. It wasn't just the divisions and the, the proto-denominations within the church that we studied earlier. It wasn't the misuse of spiritual gifts, which they had plenty of that. It wasn't the abuse of the Lord's Supper, though they had plenty of that. The problem in Corinth was selfishness. And the solution for the Corinthians was the gospel. Christ and him crucified, the one thing that Paul preached. The problem in Corinth was the inability or unwillingness to consider others as better than yourself. The inability or unwillingness to lay down one's rights for the good of another and the aversion to the Christ-like gospel love that says my job is to serve, my job is to sacrifice, I must decrease so that he might increase. That's what they needed, that's what they lacked, that was the problem. 
Think about this. With the problems of divisions and denominations, how does Paul correct that behavior? By telling them what the gospel accomplished for them. He says, you're the same body, the same body with those they were fighting with, and that the right thing to do is love the one who is united to you. He says the one who plants and the one who waters, they're one. Your divisions don't make any sense. He tells them how ridiculous it would be to promote self at the expense of another when you're actually part of the same body. He teaches humility and sacrifice specifically by preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified in order to deal with selfishness. What about with the two people that were arguing? Remember in chapter 5, these guys were suing each other, taking each other to court. And Paul says, wouldn't you rather let yourself be cheated? Paul's description of spiritual maturity, it's not self-promotion at the expense of another. It's the opposite. Let yourself be cheated. Deny yourself. Seek the good of another. Consider others as better than yourself. Later on in the book, we'll talk about how their, their potlucks were really bad. Um, that's, a, that's a Bible doctrine. Their love feasts, the meals they shared together were marked with selfishness. Where some people were gorging themselves and other people were going away hungry. The solution, again, is to consider others first. In the area of spiritual gifts, the Corinthians were using spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves, to promote themselves. And Paul will correct this in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 when he says spiritual gifts are given to each for all. And then he shows them a more excellent way, love, which does not seek its own. Spiritual maturity is seen not in what you can do or how skilled you are or how gifted you are, spiritual maturity is measured in how well you love others, even when, and especially when, this is at great expense to yourself. And this reached into the marriages of the church in Corinth. The issue of selfishness was present in their marriages. The issue of selfishness has existed in every other marriage in every other city throughout every other century as well. But the gospel wars against this kind of selfishness and shows us a better way. What Paul says is this, your sexuality isn't for you. Therefore, to deny sex from your spouse, to say that it's for your spiritual maturity, you're only lying to yourself and you don't know what sex is about. He says sexuality isn't for you. Later he says your singleness. Oh yeah, that's not for you either, actually. Later when he writes to Timothy, there's a weird passage in 1 Timothy 5, he says you're only, you only count as a single widow if you wash the saint's feet. Is that why you're single? So you can wash feet? That's the standard. Later he says your singleness isn't for you. In your marriage, you have responsibilities to your spouse that supersede your own will. And verse 4 makes this very clear when he says this uncomfortable truth. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Does this sound extreme? It should. This kind of equality in marriage, it is unique to biblical Christianity. The church invented it. But it is an e equality of sacrifice. Both husband and wife are called to give up their own autonomy. Wives and husbands equally are called to die to self for the good of others and the health of that sacred thing called marriage that's actually about the gospel. Married people, this is your reminder, in case you forgot, in case I haven't been clear, you are no longer your own. Husbands, your body belongs to your wife. Wives, you belong to your husbands. Now, naturally, we should expect our flesh, our sinful natures, to resist this 
with everything we have. But our extreme desire for independence and authority and autonomy, those are your inheritance from Adam. And Christ shows us a better way. Sacrifice, laying down of rights, being a servant. Paul teaches with authority that there is a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage and that there are obligations each spouse has to the other and that these obligations are described in such concrete terms that Paul speaks of it in terms of ownership and bodily autonomy. You are no longer the one in charge of you. There is someone else who is in charge of you. Does that sound extreme? It should. Talking like this probably led some of the people in the church to think, well, then obviously I will just stay single. And Paul says, good, serve the Lord with your singleness. This isn't for everybody. When Jesus teaches his disciples about divorce, he essentially tells them it's wrong, it's a sin. If you divorce, you're sinning. And the disciples actually respond to that in Matthew 29, verse 10. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's what the apostles of the Holy Church decided. If I can't divorce her, I'm not even going to try. They realize that marriage, the way God designed it, is extreme sacrifice. The Song of Solomon talks about love that is as strong as death. We're not good at dying. Paul will write that a husband's love for his wife ought to resemble crucifixion. When the disciples say this in Matthew, Jesus responds, all cannot accept this saying but only those to whom it has been given. Essentially, he says, yeah, marriage isn't for everybody. And Paul will say a similar thing about singleness in this chapter. He says, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea if you stay single, but that's not for everybody. Each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But whether you're single or married, your call is to die to yourself for the sake of the gospel and the good of his church. And then the way he describes this intentional singleness is a singleness model after Paul's life, you know, a complete and total dedication to missions that results in a vast amount of persecution. You could as easily say, if such is the case for a single person in the church, it is better to marry, but it's not that much better on the other side. Either way, you as a follower of Christ are called to an extreme self-denial that is literally equated with the torture of crucifixion. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's for everybody. You don't get around that call. Now, once again, the entire issue of marriage and singleness being addressed here is because the Corinthians were under the impression that one was somehow holier than the other, or they were following the illogical reasoning that if abstinence is to be preferred for a single person, then it must be good for a married person too. And Paul, not just in this chapter, but throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians, is saying, no, holiness is selfless, sacrificial love, period, wherever you are. In verse 5, he addresses the topic of abstinence within marriage. He says, no, that's a bad idea. And in verse 5, he says, do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, abstinence within the context of marriage, context of marriage is only appropriate when both spouses agree to set aside a specific amount of time for intentional prayer and fasting. So if you're not going to have the one thing, you're not going to have lunch either. That's the rule in the Bible. And then it says in verse 6, it says, but I say this as a concession, not a commandment. Well, which part was the concession? The abstinence. Paul's saying if you must, if you have to, you can take a time apart for prayer and fasting, and only if you both agree to it. Sometimes you will be called to that season, but it's not a requirement. It's not a commandment. It's not what normal married life was intended to be. 
Sex was never intended to be something withheld, used as a bargaining chip, or in any way weaponized. Paul's preventing any Corinthian Christian from believing that they are somehow holier or more mature because of their desires or lack thereof, or their self-imposed celibacy. He's preventing selfishness in a marriage, pretending to be asceticism or holiness. Now, verses 8 and 9, they really belong to a later discussion when we get to uh, verse 17, but we'll talk about this briefly. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. When he says, but there in verse 8, we know he's shifting his argument. He's shifting from one audience to the other. Verses 8 and 9, he's addressing single people, uh, the unmarried and widows. In verses 10 through 16, which we'll start with next week, he goes back to talking to married people. Verses 17 through 24 are everyone together. In verses 25 to the end, he talks to single people again. So he's just going back and forth. But right here in verse 8, he addresses the unmarried and the widows and says that it is his opinion that they should remain single, but only if this is something that they can do in a God-glorifying way. And here's the bottom line. We'll be spending more time in this chapter, right? A few more weeks. But the entirety of the chapter can be summed up in this way. Serve the Lord completely with your whole self in whatever state you find yourself to be in. It will be expensive. It will be painful. It will demand every area of your life to serve the Lord. And serving the Lord looks like serving other people. As a Christian, you are called to die to yourself. Married people have a unique opportunity to die to themselves daily because their spouse offers them ample opportunity for spiritual growth in this area. Make your own application. Revisiting Ephesians chapter 5, in the verse before the one I read, he says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Love looks like crucifixion. Husbands are to love their wives, showing affection to their wives as Christ does to the church, giving himself for her. This doesn't let wives off the hook. When Paul wrote this, how was the church being subject to Christ? Or better question maybe, to what lengths did the church go to in order to love Christ well? Martyrdom, that's the answer. Either way, we see the love that is as strong as death the extreme sacrifice that is beyond self for the good of another and for the honor of something sacred that is beyond all of us. This chapter about relationships is about the God who wills your sanctification in every area of your life, who wills that all should come to repentance and has ordained that your relationships speak of the gospel that your life, with or without relationships, is supposed to speak of the gospel. Earlier in our study in Corinthians, we saw that for Paul, speaking the gospel was essential and necessary, but it, it wasn't enough. For him, the gospel was something that he lived and breathed. He could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. He could say, I die daily. He could say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we can say with the same spiritually sanctified imagination that our relationships, our lives, our marriages, our singleness, it's about the gospel being lived out in this world. Our marriages are about the gospel. And we can rejoice in this because each one of us knows that the power of the gospel is real, that Christ is mighty to save to the uttermost and can be glorified in literally 
every area of our lives, in every one of our relationships, as we seek his kingdom first and walk in love that he demonstrated for us on the cross. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in your gospel. We rejoice in uh, the great salvation that you have purchased for us. We thank you that um, this isn't something that's only in a book or only at church or only uh, in, in one set of a, one part of a religion, but your gospel reaches uh, to every cell of our bodies even, to every relationship we have. Uh, we pray for your spirit's strengthening. We pray for your spirit's quickening in us so that we might resemble Christ in our relationships. Um, we pray that the marriages in our church would be strong. Again, we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. We know where he attacks. We pray that we would be strong and well defended in this area. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for marriages. Thank you for the relationships uh, that we have in this church. Thank you that in all these things we can look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and be confident that you are working out an eternal weight of glory in us. Thank you for how you do this. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Yeah, Bible studies on this week. You bet. Come to Bible study. 6.30 here. And 10 and Thursdays and all the things. You are sent.